Welcome to the Old Moms Podcast. We're childhood friends sharing stories from opposite ends of motherhood. We're glad you're here and hope you'll laugh along with us. Hey, Sarah, how's it going? Great. We had an awesome family day in Kansas City yesterday. We're just having a good weekend. How about you? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, we had an awesome day. We went to the pool for the first time. I took my little guy up to my cousin's house. She has a pool in the back. We had a fun baby shower for our other cousin. And it's so funny at pool parties, because when someone says a pool party, I literally have my bathing suit, like I'm ready to jump in the pool. And then I get there and everyone's in cute summer dresses, Uh drinking mimosas. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I thought we were getting in the pool, like immediately. Luckily, my kid was ready to jump in, so I was ready to jump in. But I mean, I have to say, I'm a little uneven up here. I'm a little awkward. It was my first time wearing a bathing suit in a while. And I had to just kind of strut, had to put on the Gina Confidence pants and strut out to the pool. I use my humor to handle it because everyone, again, was in cute dresses and I walked out in my bathing suit. I kind of did a model Uh strut through the living room. Like, take a good look. This is about to jump in the pool. Feast your eyes. Enjoy right here. And they were like, whoa, like screaming. I mean, this is the gift of a loving, wonderful family and good friends. Like, if there's ever a place to feel confident, let it be amongst your closest people. Mm So. I just strutted out there, jumped in the pool. I had a moment where I needed him to kind of get with us for the present opening Uh and get out of the pool, you know, Uh which is impossible. (laughs) And so his favorite thing right now are Rice Krispie Treats. Nice. So apparently I can't even make a three-ingredient Rice Krispie Treat at home. So I store-bought one, which are delicious as well. But I couldn't find the box of the small individually wrapped ones. Uh And so I purchased a king-size it might be eight or 12 inches long. And so I handed him a king size Rice Krispie <laughs> in front of everyone, like a two and a half year old just sitting on my aunt's lap. It was a baby shower. So she was getting all these breastfeeding tools and a sanitizer and all this stuff. And I kept thinking as I watched my kid gnaw on a 12 inch Rice Krispie <laughs> treat, man, I'm so glad I don't have to be the provider of a meal for this guy (laughs) because that was a very stressful time. Breastfeeding was very difficult for me. Did you take a nursing or breastfeeding class before you had your little guy? Yeah, I took, it wasn't just nursing. It was kind of a, you could choose to take a bunch of smaller courses or do like a one day course Mm -hmm. with your spouse, which was awesome that he was there during that because it was eye opening for him to just kind of understand what I would be doing. And I think the tricky part going into breastfeeding before you've had the baby when you're still pregnant and you're trying to decide and the whole way through the pregnancy the best advice I think you gave and other people gave was plan for what you want to do but be prepared to change that mm-hmm. at any time mm-hmm. so we went into after he was born yeah we're gonna we're gonna breastfeed we want to exclusively breastfeed that's our plan that's what we're gonna do and I was shocked by how hard it was and I think I was a little bit frustrated and upset at my own body because let's be real, I've kind of been sporting a motherly figure most of my life. Uh (laughs) Being a little bit chubbier and having bigger breasts as a younger person. So I assumed that I would be a natural at breastfeeding. You know, I just assumed that would be the case. And it was a real struggle. Uh, He didn't want to latch. We had a hard time with that. He was a huge baby, so he was starving. I mean, he came out and was like, I'd like to surf and turf if that's available because I'm almost 10 pounds Somebody feed me something big right now. And I could not make enough milk for him. 
Oh my gosh. We took a class also and Joe was there and I remember sitting in the class and they kept talking about different positions and do this with the baby and you could try this or you, and it was always with one baby. And every time I kept thinking, where, am, where's the other baby during this? Am I holding the other one at the same time right. like next to me on the couch? Where is, you know, what do I do? And we were told a few helpful things, you know, tips and tricks, I guess, like letting your skin dry out. And I was able to nurse them never simultaneously. We tried a few times and that involved Joe in front of me holding both of their heads in position Mm. and me holding their bodies. And I thought we can't have four hands involved in this if we're doing this every two and a half hours. I mean, it's just totally unrealistic. So I ended up pumping early on so that I could hold a bottle for one of them out to the side on the couch while I nursed the other one. And then we would switch at the next feeding. But this involved me pumping early and often after every feeding I pumped. And that was to keep my milk supply up enough for two babies. And so that I had a bottle ready to go for the bottle baby at the next feeding. And I was never, I never even had enough milk to put in the freezer or, you know, stay in the fridge. We just used it at the next feeding. Whatever I pumped from the last time went in the bottle for the next one, the next feeding. So I did both for about five months and then went to exclusively pumping because I just felt like if they're going to get this milk anyway, then, you know, I need to do it in a way that's easier. It was just a around the clock, relentless, you know, experience. So it's a lot of work. Yeah. You had double the work on top of the already intense job of breastfeeding. It is so much work. And I feel like it's, you know, there's so much planning involved. There's cleaning all the pump parts. There's, you know, your own comfort level. I mean, I think it's fine that women feel comfortable breastfeeding in public or wherever they are, but not everyone does. Like, there's just a lot to navigate and it's complex. It's just not a simple decision. There's so much goes into it. How the, you know, the particular baby, the particular mom, everybody's feelings, everybody's physical, you know, whether the baby has a tongue tie, whether the mom is producing enough milk. It's just a huge, complicated, individual web. So I feel like whatever people work out that helps them feel like I'm being the best mom I can is the best route to take. Absolutely. And I hate that there's so much judgment around if you breastfeed or you don't. I think most people go into having a baby assuming they're going to breastfeed because it's naturally available, all things being equal. Here's a free, healthy, at the perfect temperature, readily available meal for your child, mm-hmm. or go buy this $75 can of <laughs> formula for your baby. Like, of course, there's going to be circumstances where someone chooses to not breastfeed for whatever reason they choose to. But my husband, through all of this, we were just talking about breastfeeding and we really didn't have a conversation about how we would handle it if that wasn't an option. Mm-hmm. So I had so many extra appointments with my pregnancy that I'm sure he saw pamphlets and posters everywhere saying, Rest. Rest is best. Rest is best. And so (laughs) the nurse comes in. I was hooked up to the pumping machine in the room and I just wasn't making enough milk. And the nurse came in and said, we need to start supplementing with formula. He needs more food. And it was heartbreaking because I thought I was going to be able to do this and I couldn't do it. And it was kind of hilarious. My husband just kind of like chimed in like, well, we kind of decided we were going to use breast milk. (laughs) And I looked at him like, would you like to get hooked up on this? Because I'm shooting blanks. What? would you like? What do you see happening? What's your vision here? (laughs) I almost lost my mind. And it was not for a lack of trying, folks. I mean, if someone had said to me, Gina, all you need to do is eat an omelet 
made of bald eagle eggs. That's all <laughs> you need to make. I would have called my brother and been like, how much do you love your nephew? Enough to be in a federal prison for 10 years? I need you to climb a tree in Washington State and retrieve some bald eagle eggs for me. I did everything I could. I read everything I could. I was drinking blue Gatorade. Some article said blue Gatorade. I don't know what it is. It worked for me. I mean, I was doing whatever I could and it just mm-hmm. didn't work. And I was exhausted and I mm-hmm. still was making, honestly, I would pump and make maybe half an ounce. Oh my goodness. So after a month, he became a formula baby and that's the way it was. We supplemented with formula too. I mean, probably after about a month, I couldn't make enough for two babies. I've always been kind of petite and, you know, in all respects. And so I never thought that I was going to be able to be a milk factory. I worried that I would have your situation. Honestly, that's what it looked like I would have to the, <laughs> to the, to the naked eye. <laughs> to the naked eye, exactly. So um, anyway, we had to supplement with formula all also, which looked like after I would hold a bottle of pumped breast milk and nurse the other baby at the same time, then they would get, we called them chasers. We would make up small bottles of formula, like two to four ounces, and they could drink however much else they needed. So we front loaded with breast milk. So they got mostly that and then they could follow up with however much they needed afterwards. So it was, even that was so much to do because here I'm pumping, we're cleaning pump parts, we're preparing two bottles. Once I started exclusively pumping and wasn't nursing anymore, two bottles that had breast milk in them. Then the two backup bottles, they made to clean four bottles every time we, I mean, it was just so much to manage. It was like a job to handle it all. But fast forward to now, and I feel like that is so far in the past that I can't even hardly remember the days because between then and now I had a breast cancer diagnosis and part of my treatment was to get a mastectomy. So I don't even still have real breasts. I had reconstruction. So I, my clothes fit normally and no one could ever tell by looking at me, but it's It's just so funny how far you can come from being so worried about, am I making enough milk? Is this the best thing? Are they going to be okay? To now where I think, oh, I'm just so glad I'm alive. I don't even care if I have those body parts anymore or not. It's a huge leap. Yeah. You've always had such a positive outlook and had such perspective in your life, even before the cancer diagnosis that you handled it so well. And to be able to say that now, yeah, you've got these two brilliant, kind, loving, amazing sons. And the further you move away from the breast feeding fiasco, because I called it a fiasco, <laughs> you realize, you know, that's just a, a part of the roller coaster of being a parent and making hard decisions of what's best for your kids. And, and then when something like a, a cancer diagnosis comes in, you really have the perspective to say, hey, wow, you can you can survive almost anything if you've got the right mindset and the right support in place. And Oh, absolutely. I link the breastfeeding conversation immediately to breast cancer, not just because of the breast link. I remember remember my breast surgeon. So the part of the mastectomy is to have a breast surgeon come in first, remove all the breast tissue. And then if you're doing simultaneous reconstruction, a plastic surgeon comes in and does his work following the breast surgeon's work. So the breast surgeon came in on the day of my mastectomy to our pre-op room and he was talking to me about nipple sparing surgery. So you can choose to have them remove your nipples and then reattach those to whatever kind of breast is being formed as part of your reconstruction if you've chosen that. So he brings that up and was kind of just wondering if I wanted to do that or you can just scrap it all and you know start from a blank slate so he walks in and asks about nipple sparing surgery and how I feel about that and I had to let him know that my nipples and I were separated and still living together since 
I finished all of that pumping and breastfeeding and everything else. I was like, oh, if I could not have these anymore, that would be fantastic. I don't know if you have, but I experienced a heightened sensitivity in that area since the days of all the nursing and all the pumping ended. And I mean heightened to the point of full body goosebumps with a cool breeze. That is what I mean. You were ready for a blank slate. You said, let's start over. Ready for a blank slate. I was like, it is finished. So anyway, that I mean, just one of those awkward, funny parts of the breast cancer experience. I really feel like my attitude towards life and hard things is to find the humor, focus on the humor, use it to help buoy you through the hardest parts. And that was just one really funny thing. It was a conversation they probably thought was going to be 10 minutes and I just, boop, nope. Yeah. Mm, not keeping those. Yeah. You are a forge ahead lady, which is kind of the best way to be in a cancer diagnosis situation when you're having to make those kind of decisions. It's better to keep moving. Let's do this. Find what makes you most comfortable during an uncomfortable time. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about how you found out that you had cancer? And Sure. Well, I had an aunt who married into our family, so it wasn't a genetic risk to me that had breast cancer. So of course, she was always on my mind whenever I I thought about mammograms or breast cancer. And I was experiencing for two years breast pain that was kind of sporadic, random. It was sharp pain. I mean, it felt like a little needle prick is what it felt like. And a lot of times it would be while I was driving. And I think it was just that was a time it probably was happening other times. But that was a time when I would concentrate on it because, you know, things were quiet and I didn't have a lot of other things pulling at my attention besides the act of driving. And I brought it up to my general practitioner at my physical when I was 35. Three, and he said breast pain isn't really a sign of cancer. He did a thorough exam, physical exam, and said that it was fine. The same year, I brought it up to my OBGYN at my annual appointment with him. Same thing. Breast pain is not a sign of cancer. Did a thorough exam. Nothing was there. I went another year, you know, from 33 to 34 and was still experiencing it. And I something was just always in the back of my mind that I needed to get it checked out. So I was 34 and asked my GP again, still had the pain, same story from him. My OBGYN, I kind of pushed it and said, it is a really sharp pain. It has to be something. So he said, if it would make you feel better, let me just write a script for a mammogram. They don't recommend that you get mammograms until you're 40 or well over 40. I think they've actually been pushing it out and later. So I said, yes, it would. It would make me feel better to get a mammogram. I mean, it's just, it wasn't typical to get a mammogram when you were 34. So I went downstairs, was a breast center at that office, got a mammogram. They called me back and wanted me to come in and have an ultrasound. So two weeks later, I went in to have the ultrasound done and everything was fine. Then I went another year and ironically that whole first year after that mammogram, I'm thinking I'm feeling good, total peace of mind. Mammogram was clear. The breast pains don't mean anything. And ironically that year that I felt most at peace about it, I was sometime during that year starting to grow these cancer cells. And so then when I went back and had it again, another mammogram at 35, same story, called me back. We want to do an ultrasound. No problem. I had done that the year before. Everything was fine. So I'm skipping back, do the ultrasound. And then they saw something on it that time. They wanted mm-hmm. to do a biopsy. And I really have to say, oddly, I had this calm peacefulness about me with all of it. I wasn't even, not that I was sure that I didn't have breast cancer, but I just felt I was sure I was going to be okay. I had this strong, strong sense that everything was going to be fine regardless. So I went back for a biopsy, which was much more painful than I thought it was going to be. It was, they actually use a harpoon like they 
they use on a ship when they're trying to sedate large whales. <laughs> That's what it felt like anyway. <laughs> um, I, I <laughs> yeah. described it to Joe. I was like, called it a needle, but it looked like a straw. Anyway, it was super painful. So I had this biopsy. And then two days later, I was supposed to get the biopsy results. I was at work. The boys were at school. It got to be lunchtime. I hadn't had a call yet. So I thought I'm going to head out for lunch and just call the office because I feel like here I am waiting all day. If it's sitting on someone's desk and they just haven't had a chance to call me or I'm like the seventh person on the list, I will just go ahead and call so I can find this out now. So I called them. I said, I just wondered if my results were in yet. And she goes, oh, actually, yes, they just brought them in. She said, I haven't even read it. So give me a second to read it. So she was kind of quiet reading it. I'm driving along and she said, I am so sorry to tell you this, Sarah, but this is a breast cancer. And I said, okay, okay, I'm going to pull over into a parking lot because I knew that was the first thing I needed to do was stop driving. Mm -hmm. So I was alone. I pulled over into a parking lot. I had got out a pencil because she was telling me, you know, names like ductal carcinoma in C2. It was estrogen positive, progesterone positive, you know, all these other things she's telling me. And I wrote it all down. And then I called Joe and my parents and Joe left work immediately, met me at home so we could kind of process it. It was a good thing. Our kids were at school. So we had this moment alone and my Mm -hmm. parents were out of town taking care of my granny. And I said, you know, as anyone would, I was like, nothing's happening right now. There's no change. Just come back when you were going to travel back anyway. And then two hours later, my mom's like, we're on the road. So they immediately packed up all their stuff to drive back. And that was honestly telling my parents was one of the hardest parts. That was one of the hard, they were the hardest people to tell because I was already a parent. I know that love a parent has for their child. And then I was telling them that their child, never mind that it was me, but I was telling them that their child had cancer. And it's crazy to say, and I knew it was going to be so upsetting. I love that you're sharing the fact that you were persistent to get the care you needed and that you listened to your body. And that's what we all need to do. Bodies change as you get older and you don't know what is just a normal aging thing or what's residual pain from breastfeeding. You just don't know. So asking questions and finding out and you've always been such a good problem solver in figuring out what could this be? Let me do my due diligence to know and thank God you did because you ended up getting the care you needed. Yes, we ended up finding the cancer really early, which is just so important. So obviously I'm a huge advocate for mammograms early and annually for everyone. You know, it's just insurance and cost and false positive reasons that they we don't do that. But we could realistically, if every woman got mammograms starting in their 30s every year, catch almost everyone at a stage zero or a stage one and not be losing so many women every year to breast cancer. Yes, yes. Obviously, there were really hard parts of the breast cancer journey. And not to drag us all down with that, I wanted to share some of the more hilarious aspects of going through a full year of treatment for breast cancer because it, there were funny parts with it. And I feel like there's such a gift in a diagnosis like that. I'm the person that sees silver linings and tries to look for what we can get out of whatever the situation is, positive or negative. And so we tried to demonstrate that for our boys who were both eight at the time. So the first funny thing was just talking about breasts so much. We were just constantly our family was talking about breasts. So after knowing just what the part was, all of a sudden we're all saying breast constantly with these two (laughs) eight-year-old boys. And then we're talking about uh, amputating mine, basically, when I was making the decision to do a bilateral mastectomy. So that was crazy to wrap your head around when you're an eight-year-old little boy. It's just a bizarre thing to think about. So another funny part of this process is getting an MRI, which I had kind of early on. And then I had, you know, more after that. But I'm a talkative person. So I find myself with this MRI and you're not talking. I was awake for 20 to 30 minutes not talking, which never happens. That's the longest you've gone 
important. <laughs> yeah, it is. It was a personal <laughs> record. <laughs> so, and they, they bring you in to the MRI and, you know, of course you're gowned up and that you have to climb up onto the table that they're going to slide into the MRI machine. And you lay down on your stomach and there's two holes you have to line yourself up with because what they need to see needs to be dangled through <laughs> these two openings on the table. So you climb up so awkwardly. I mean, this should be a staircase or something. You just climb up and mount this table and like, line yourself up and shimmy into position. I put my hands behind me, like straight next to my sides, and they laid in my hands a little bulb that felt like kind of the nose suction bulb that they give you in the hospital when your kids are born. And that's in your hand and it's the emergency bulb. And so you're supposed to squeeze it if you're feeling claustrophobic or you are hurting or you can't just can't stay in there anymore. It's your way to communicate with them because they're not going to hear what you say. <laughs> so the whole time I'm like, I'm going to squeeze the bulb accidentally and they're going to think it's an emergency <laughs> and they're going to stop this scan and then pull me out and then we have to start all over again. So I was just like, don't squeeze the bulb. Don't squeeze the bulb. So then I really lightened my grip where I wasn't even holding it. I just was making a nest for the bulb with my hand. I mean, the things <laughs> that go through your mind that you're hyper focused on. So they push me in there and then I'm like, I'm going to drop the bulb. The bulb is going to drop and then I'm going to need the bulb and I won't have it because I'm not actually holding it. I just made the bulb nest and I'm not squeezing it. <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. I ended up being fine, but it was just so bizarre. And they're talking to me and they're playing music and it was loud, but it was just so strange. When I got out of it, I thought I need to go to lunch with four people. I can't. I've just not talked for 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> It was so strange. It was a strange experience. But I love that you're going through breast cancer. You're trying to figure things out and you're most concerned about this bulb. And you're like, that just speaks to your ability to find ways to handle stress. After I had my actual huge surgery, I stayed overnight in the hospital and Joe was able to stay in my room with me. And it was really nice that they put me on a floor that was a maternity floor. So I had mm. the maternity nurse, the labor and delivery nurses who oh. were amazing, just so patient and kind. I mean, so many nurses are, but there's something really special about L&D nurses, I feel, that are taking care of one patient who busts into two patients, you know, like as soon mm -hmm. as you have the baby. So I remember, you know, during that time, I needed to start eating solid foods because then I could take oral pain medications, which then would let me kind of come back to life and not be so sleepy and feel drugged up. And a couple of times I woke up, my parents were in the hospital room and Joe's there and I would wake up and a saltine would be dangling from my lip, like just one corner because my mom was standing there trying to get me to just, if I ate two saltines, I could take the oral pain meds. That's all I needed. So she would just be like trying to get it in there. And apparently I would fall asleep in the middle of my effort to take a bite. <laughs> so it would just be like still stuck to my dry lip, you know, just Aww. dangling. And then I remember the first time they got me up. I mean, you think about getting up out of bed or getting up out of a chair and how you have to use your arms maybe to push down on a bed or you're definitely use your, some muscles in your upper body and your chest. The way that they did my my mastectomy and reconstruction was to make a slit in my pec muscles, each pec muscle. And they inserted these expanders that were just temporary, kind of like hard, square, awkwardly, balloons that were under my skin and partially under my muscle. So I also had had this trauma to my pec muscles, you know, on top of just this massive, massive chest surgery. So anyway, three nurses come in to help me just get me to stand up out of the bed without hurt because they're trying to help me without hurting me. So they all come in and we walk walk to the bathroom. And I don't know how many minutes passed between, if you think about how far apart hospital bed is, 
and the bathroom that's in the room. It was the slowest shuffle with all three of them, like holding my arms, holding my back, making sure I don't fall. And we all get into the bathroom and they help me, you know, sit down on the toilet to go to the bathroom. And I'm thinking I'm going to go to the bathroom alone, as I always do. <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> they didn't leave. They were right there because, of course, I could fall right off. And it was my first time walking or anything. So I was like, all right, we're going to do this together. So, I mean, obviously, I can't start right away, you know. <laughs> so we're waiting. We're all just waiting. And I'm waiting, too. Like, I'm not really, I want to go. I'm fine going. I'm not, like, at this point, all modesty is out the window, you know. I mean, so I'm just sitting there. And we're all waiting. So we're just kind of talking about stuff. And I'm sitting. Of course, my parents and Joe are in the other room, you know, through a thin door in between us. And I'm just sitting. And then when it they first heard like the first little tinkle sound and I went and all four of us were like, yay! <laughs> <laughs> Cheering for me. I felt like I was two years old on a body chair, but we were all so excited. And, and you know, I am, I was like sleepy, happy, like, oh my gosh, you guys, I did it. You know, and then we had to get me like all the way back to thing, but it was so funny. And there I am with my breasts have just been cut off and my muscles have been cut like a ribeye. And, but that was so funny to me. Like, why not laugh at that? It was hilarious and so crazy. When does that ever happen? Oh, you have the best attitude. I feel like the example you can share with everyone of handling things with grace and little, little mama bird feeding her baby <laughs> crackers, <laughs> having good people around you to support you and love you and cheer for you through every step of the way and being able to have perspective in all of it. That's what's made you a survivor and be able to help other people, you know, find if you can the joy in a tough situation situation, it makes you really appreciate people and love people. Not that you didn't before, but it really highlights the amazing, how amazing you are and the people around you. Oh, we had the best support system that anyone has ever had going through cancer. And the way people in our friend circle rallied around us and set up a meal train for us. And, you know, everybody just stepped up. And I have to say, it does take your relationship with your spouse to a whole new level to have one of you support the other through something so extensive like that, because they're going through their own separate trauma experience of having their spouse deal with this. And then they're having to watch you suffer physically and endure long treatments. And you find yourself, you know, back to the humor piece. I'm always back to that. Just laughing through some of these bizarre situations that you don't, you don't envision on your wedding day that you will ever experience. So I came home from this surgery and had drains because all this fluid is produced as your body's healing. And I had to be able to shower with these drains that were, you know, from the inside of my body out, you know, collecting fluid in these little bulbs. So I had this special little drain holder that I got on Amazon that I could loop around my neck so you could be wearing nothing but still have these drains not dangling down and pulling where they were stitched to you. And so Joe would have to be, he was my full on shower helper. You know, he'd have to be in the bathroom handing me things, you know, helping me get through it. And one of the funniest times is when I took my first shower pretty much by myself and I just had to call him back in to help me dry off because you're kind of a T-Rex. You can't, you have to do all these PT mm -hmm. exercises so you don't get stuck with your arms not able to lift over your head after a massive chest surgery like this. So at first, everything is tight and healing and sore. And so I had to have Joe come back in after I took a shower, which took about an hour, which is exhausting. You know, you're so tired. Your focus just narrows to these basic, like, I will do a shower alone. This is my goal, you know? So I got all clean and he comes in and I need him to help dry me off. But I still have these tubes everywhere and I'm super sore in some places. Places. So I was like, we couldn't use a bath towel and risk having it tug at something that was going to be really painful or rub in the wrong spot. So Joe gets a stack of 
of washcloths, like 27 washcloths, and puts them on the counter and just starts like dabbing at all the different areas of my body, you know? <laughs> He's so cute. He was so great. Okay. I dried this inch. Does this hurt? I dry in between here. He spent all this time. And then, then, so he finished that and I still felt wet, you know? I mean, you haven't like shimmied a towel on your back. Like I have to like rub the towel on my back. I still felt wet. So he grabs the hairdryer and I stand... <laughs> I stand like Julia Roberts in Runaway Bride with Joan Cusack, like trying to calm her down. And she's trying to like air her armpits, you know, she's trying not to run from her last wedding. And so Joe's there with the hairdryer and I put my arms up as much as I can. And I'm just like moving left and right, slowly like swaying. And he's using the hairdryer on low, you know, low heat, just kind of like blowing all the parts of my skin till I felt like I could put clothes on. I mean, it was just so we were laughing so hard. It was ridiculous, but it was what we had to do. And he is so wonderful that he never feels like, do we really have to do that? Like, can we just like, you're, you're just going to be a little wet. You had surgery. Just put your clothes on. It's not going to feel the same no matter what. Never has he ever treated me that way. I mean, he's just like, oh, I will get the hairdryer out and hold it for 45 minutes if that's what you need to feel good. Whatever. I mean, he just, mm, it's amazing. Yeah. I love how the whole cancer experience made it possible for you to highlight even more than you normally do what an amazing husband he is and how your family had all stepped in and taken care of things. That's amazing. That, that's the way we should all go through life hoping that when something terrible happens that everyone we love rallies around us and we come out of it stronger and happier and closer to each other than we were before. Oh, absolutely. And as my dad has said before, I don't worry about something terrible happening. I know something terrible is going to happen. I mean, really, <laughs> true, we <true>. all, <laughs> we're all just living life. Something terrible is going to happen. And I feel like that's great perspective to have on, you know, especially me sitting here without real breasts, hearing people worry about, am I breastfeeding? Am I not? I'm doing the formula. I don't know if it's going to be okay. And I feel like there's young moms who have babies after breast cancer who don't have real breasts and they can't. There's moms that adopt that they can't produce breast milk. There's, you know, people that just can't do it. There's people that just don't want to do it because they can't be the best mom that they want to be. You don't know the toll it takes on someone else physically. You don't know someone else's physical ability to actually breastfeed. It certainly isn't going to be the same for everybody. You can't know their personal experience. So I feel like if we can all just relax about the decision, each person should feel guilt-free about the choices they make if it's the best choice for them. I mean, you don't know what's mm -hmm. coming down the road. As soon as you, somebody tells you you have breast cancer, you just have this whole new perspective. And I think sometimes hearing another person's story without having it happen to you can kind of share that perspective where you think in your mind, you know, this is so much more is going to happen in my life and this baby's life. This is a blip on the radar screen of a full lifetime. These choices right now about eating, just like the Bryce Krispie bar was. I mean, he's going to have so many awesome, nutritious, <laughs> life-giving meals in his time. Right. You had an awesome baby shower pool experience. And part of it was that nobody was stressing about the food and he was able to just, you know, sprawl out and enjoy that snack. He probably felt like a king with the king size bar because he had like had this totally. awesome pool day and then got to just lounge there, you know, in somebody's loving arms and just nod a giant Rice Krispie tree bigger than he'd ever seen. Like that's a great memory. I think sometimes we like, deny ourselves great memories by, you know, tainting them with our worry about, is this right? Was it good? Is somebody thinking this about me? Totally. And I even thought when I was having a hard time breastfeeding and I was pumping and I would be crying and I, I jokingly said, I feel like I'm giving my baby anxiety milk. <laughs> <laughs> if they interviewed psychopaths mothers and they were like, well, <laughs> I was under immense stress during breastfeeding. You know what yes, I mean? Like, yes. what's the other... What's the other side of breastfeeding? 
doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I started yes. worrying about, gosh, am I passing along all this negative, stressful energy to my baby? I would see my husband feeding our baby formula from a bottle and it was this magical, beautiful, easy, loving moment. Mm-hmm. He's cradled in his arms. He's able to, to feed easily. Every time I tried to nurse with him, it was screaming anxiety. He couldn't latch. I would hold him in a hundred different positions. He's starving. I'm stressed. I'm sweating. I thought, wow, there's more bonding going on between a dad and a bottle of formula with the baby than me Mm -hmm, breastfeeding him. mm -hmm. So that was kind of ultimately too, hey, at what point do you say it's hurting our relationship? Oh, yeah. You have to put your relationship above all else. You know, your relationship with your kid. That's what is the most important to quote, get right. Listen to your body. Do what's best for your family. Apart from doing something that puts your baby or yourself in danger, whatever you're doing is the right thing for you. Keep on trucking. Bye, Gina. Bye, Sarah.